everyone, and again, my heartfelt appreciation for your courage and bravery to weather the stormy weather. It was raining buckets when I was coming in, so it was a bit daunting, but it's an excellent turnout on a night like this, so appreciate it. And thank you, all of you who are safe and warm and at home, and particularly the friends from Europe who've signed up. Awesome. Um, I am um, quite touched by Gloria's presentation and glad that she's doing this work. There is uh, just, it's heartbreaking to know some of the reality of what people are living with and, and also to feel the transformation and the power of what happens when people are given an opportunity to um, heal. And so what she's doing with the Harambee Arts and the Shanti Foundation are um, an intricative approach that allows a person to be met where they're at and then to give them the supports and the tools to begin to start healing and transforming and releasing the stuff that no longer serves and creating a life of magnificence that then they are in a position to help others. And so one of the things that I was really, um, which I, I love about what she's doing and these projects is that that's a perfect example of a whole life healing. And that's exactly what I wanted to speak about tonight is when we use the Dhamma in a way where we are uh, doing what is similar in our own circumstances. So some of us have, um, have been through a few things, one or two. Uh, and, you know, between illnesses and traumas and drugs and abandonment and... And then just the dislocation and the unsettledness of living in this world right now with so much uncertainty in every direction. You know, we come on a spectrum of being well put together and kind of a bit of a mess. And it is wonderful when we are invited to show up just exactly where we're at. And we don't have to be different to walk in the door and then to begin to receive the teachings that then touch us and support us where we're at and allow us to begin this process of unpacking and unraveling and allowing health to be re-established. So this process of bringing art, bringing love, bringing compassion, bringing skill, unraveling the layers of pain and confusion and trauma, returning to the radiance of the human heart, that is in essence what we're each doing in our own ways, in our own lives, in our own practices. And how badly messed up we are and how badly beaten up we are, for, for each of us it's going to be different depending on a whole bunch of circumstances. And so I, I don't feel myself as um, like in a completely different category and kettle of fish than anybody else because it's the circumstances of life rather than through my own volition that we travel through some of this territory. 
So I wanted to talk about that tonight. I wanted to speak about that and how that is relevant in our own healing journeys, our own path, our own path of awakening. And whether we're navigating uh, chronic illness or anxiety or we're dealing with addiction or whether we've got um, body pains or heartaches or grief that we've never been able to touch and release or whether we're just trying to figure out how do we orient in this world where there is such a profound level of disorientation happening with what is going on in the world around us right now. So wherever we find ourselves, and whether we feel the compelling nature of the Buddha's teachings as a direct and clear path that can guide us and open up our minds and give us the perspective of where we need to focus and how we can use the muscles of our mind to change what we are focusing on so that we move from the ruts and the gutters and the stuff that is just a mess to increasing capacity to be focused on what is healthy and healing and wholesome and to re-establishing connection with the luminous, radiant nature which is there. It's always been there. And it will always be there. It just, it gets obscured. We can't see it. We can't always feel it. And some of the ruts feel like it's not there. But because it feels it's not the same as it's actually not there. So the path of practice is set up to re-establish us and give us the tools so that we reconnect rediscover the radiant, luminous nature of our hearts that's always been there. But sometimes we don't know. We haven't seen it. We can't feel it. We don't have access to it. And so I want to tell a little story and then come back. When I uh, went to Asia in 1987, I went on a pilgrimage and I went to visit Wat Suan Mok and the great forest meditation master Ajahn Buddhadasa, who is, or the late Ajahn Buddhadasa, who was brilliant in speaking about some of the core fundamental teachings in a way that cut through the contemporary ideologies that had become encrusted. And so he wanted to move as far away from Bangkok as he possibly could because he knew that if he started teaching about some of these things and he was in Bangkok, he'd be up up in in deep doo-doo with the people who were entrenched in the cultural values that weren't able to see the Dharma in the radical aliveness that was what his brilliant contribution was. So he uh, opened up a monastery in southern Thailand called Wat Suan Mok and had a number of monks and had lay people and had meditation retreats. And I remember going in 1987 and visiting him. And one of the things that I was struck by was that he had a whole 
museum, a whole section of the monastery that was devoted to art. It had only artistic expressions of the Dhamma. And I thought that that was absolutely brilliant because art, like poetry, can touch us in ways that words do not. And you can see something and you can get a feeling about a concept in a way that is a lot harder when all you are hearing is words. And so a multiple modality access into the Dhamma felt to me to be a helpful and healthy expression. And so it was a huge museum and there were many, many pieces of art. And the piece of art that struck me the most was this picture of, you know, the happy, that we know him as the happy monk with the big belly and his robes are falling off of him and his hands are, are like this and there's this absolute radiant expression of joy on his face. So his hands are over his head and there's this radiant luminous expression of ecstasy. And underneath this picture is the caption, Oh, what joy! to discover there is no happiness in this world. <laughs> and so it does a number, you know. It puts us in a, in a cognitive dissonance of how is it that the greatest joy, the most incredible expression of ecstasy can come from recognizing that there's no joy in this world. And so that, that conundrum just really evoked in me this appreciation that the path where it leads us is to this joy that is not clinging to the world, that is not based on holding on and identifying with the stuff that is constantly changing. But as we touch into knowing more what our actual deep experience is. And we are able to get underneath some of those patterns of holding and grasping. We can experience this deep and radiant joy that comes from letting go. And so that has been a, like a, a north star for me. That joy of, of interest in that joy, of moving towards that joy. And life has a way of doing what it does, and sometimes we get a little bit beaten up, and I'm no exception. I got tossed around and tangled by the Santa Rosa fires and ended up having to move out of my place and not having a home and then found out that I've got a whole gazillion different kinds of illnesses that were underneath all of that that I'm in the process of treating and so sometimes it's not so much fun <laughs> and so there are times in life when we don't have it to go on three month retreats either because we're living in the city and we're married and we have families or because we've got partners or because we've got elder parents or because we've got kids or because our brains absolutely cannot focus for more than 15 minutes at a time and there's no way we're going to survive a three month retreat and that's the reality and so like Gloria was talking with the women that she's encountered with they don't need silence prolonged periods of silence it's too painful 
And there's times for each of us when it's too painful. And it's times also for people who are living in monasteries as monastics where it's too painful to be on prolonged periods of silent meditation retreat. And so rather than insisting that we fit into a form and into a box of saying that that is the right way of practicing, that is what meditation is about, that is how we are supposed to practice, what is needed is to meet our experience where we are at. To touch it with kindness, with interest, with curiosity. And to begin to gather in the tools and the skills and the resources to begin to start turning whatever it is that we've been through into allowing the challenge to be transformed into blessings, into opportunities, into gifts for ourselves and for others. And so, I mean, Christina's introduction of me was quite remarkable. And I don't, um, I felt humbled hearing all of those things because I'm aware of all of the places where I still have work to do rather than the places that it's all finished and tidy and done. But for me, my interest is on waking up in a way where I bring the depth of what I know to be true into all of the different aspects of my life. And so I can know something in a, in a way where I know the radiant nature of the luminous mind. And it still can be incredibly challenging having difficult conversations with people. You know? So it's not as if one kind of knowing automatically translates into every aspect of one's life. You know? I am in the East Bay Meditation um, Center's White Awake in Sangha group, which is an absolutely awesome program where it is designed for white people to look at their white privilege and to begin to look more closely at the biases that we have as white people and the privilege that we have and how some of it isn't volitional. It's not actually something that we set up to believe. But part of it is just being in systems and structures that are designed that way, you know? And to feel my own trembling entering into this conversation because part of my own personal story is that when I was a little person, I used specialness in order to get my needs met. Now, I wasn't identified with being white. That wasn't the privilege of being white. But coming into this course, it feels a little bit like walking into the guillotine, where I know that that structure, which in the past had supported me, is open for being splayed. And the part of me that is still identified with needing to be special in order to get my needs met, is, is, is trembling about this process of deliberately walking into the light that illuminates that and letting it go. Even while, at the very same moment, I know on a cognitive level, on a values level, this is absolutely aligned with what I want to do. But on an emotional level, it's a completely different kettle of fish. 
And so what we need to do in this path is show up in all of the fullness of our experience. And then rather than just sit on the seat and say, yeah, well, Christina says that I'm awesome. (laughs) Is for me to look at where do I have more work to do with my own practice of integrity, of harmlessness, of revealing my own biases. Where am I lacking compassion in myself and towards others? Where do I take advantage of my privilege in order to build power and wealth for myself at other people's expenses? How do I invest in systems that support me because of skin color or something else as ridiculous as being born in a female body and being cisgendered? rather than transgendered. Ridiculous only in the sense that it's an assumption that I have rather than the reality that I live with. So here we are in an opportunity to have a whole life healing path where the depth of what we know begins to start coming into all parts of our life. And in certain circumstances... We do not need three-month retreats and tons of silence and isolation. What we need is tenderness and closeness and community. We don't have access to this radiant, luminous joy that is our intrinsic nature. We need to be reminded how to have joy. So part of what happened for me with all of the health stuff is that the limbic part of my brain got jammed into a stress response. And so when that happens, your body forgets how to experience joy. And so even though I know with absolute conviction from a Dharma perspective that the joy is radiant and luminous, I don't always have access to it. So the irony is is that the Dharma can be solid and we still have room where we need to practice. And so I'm involved in a neuroplasticity community. And that is a totally awesome community. Helping us rewire our brains and get out of these ruts that are wired for stress. And though we do not talk about our symptoms and our illnesses and our diagnoses, we support each other in our successes. And one of the things that we do is we laugh together. And because everybody in this forum is navigating chronic illnesses of one form or another, and because laughter is a fabulous form of medicine, and it helps us, then we're hugely motivated. So this international community meets regularly to laugh. And some of us are laughing our ways into health. So skillful means is creative. It doesn't always look the way we think it should look in order to bring meditation and mindfulness into the fruition of knowing and experience it and opening up the parts of our mind-body system that sometimes we do not have access to. And when we do that in a way that is connected, where we see each other, where we get each other, where we're present with each other, when we feel seen, when we feel appreciated and valued, when we feel the strength of our group, it gives us resource that we don't necessarily have access to as an individual.
So Christina mentioned the day-long retreat that I'm going to be doing with Melanie Demore on the 16th of March, and I feel really excited by it. Melanie, how many of you know Melanie? A few of you know Melanie. The rest of you, I really hope you get to know Melanie. Melanie is absolutely awesome. Words do not do Melanie justice. Absolutely don't, but I'm going to give it a try. Ronnie Gilbert, the late Ronnie Gilbert, said that Melanie was power wrapped in velvet. That's close. I experience Melanie as a radically inclusive evangelical minister. (laughs) And her passion is bringing people into cohesive sense of unity. And having them feel their own goodness and their own power. And she is masterful at doing that. And so to put together somebody who is masterful at bringing energy into a group and getting people in a cohesive place with meditation where we are going inward and feeling the power of our capacity to focus and bringing forward the quality of loving kindness and allowing that to give us access to what is pervasive is this mixing of the outer and the inner. It's the mixing of skillful means bodies they don't always do what you want them to I don't know if you guys opened your eyes in the meditation earlier but I was coughing and choking and my eyes were streaming and there was snot running down my face it was like perfect (laughs) and Gloria had the tissues so I couldn't reach over and grab them so I sat there it's like welcome to the human form this is what happens it does not necessarily behave when we're just in the dhamma seat And that's what we have to work with, is just to meet what arises and then respond in a way where we can make wise choices. So one of the brilliances of our experience as human beings is that we have choice about what we focus on. And that choice has a huge impact in the reality that we experience. And so, right now, we can think about the torrential rains. We can think about places that are flooding. We can think about people that are uh, sick. We can think about people who are in danger. And with every place where we focus our attention, it's going to have an impact. We're going to feel an impact in our body and in our hearts and with memories and associations and mental images in our mind. We can also bring to mind qualities of love or imagine being in a puddle of puppies. And in a puddle of puppies, it has a very different impact. 
of sweet and tender and innocent and playful and joyful and easy. So where we focus our attention has a huge impact on what our experience is. And how we relate to that experience then determines our reality. So part of what we are learning in a meditation situation is how to develop the muscles of our mind so that we can make wise choices. So that we don't get stuck in the rut. And when we do get stuck in a rut, we know how to muck out or we know how to jump out. We know how to switch the channel so that we've got different things that we can focus on. But the reality is that when there is an accumulation of so many different challenges that a person has, their capacity to just use their own choice becomes diminished. And so it is fabulous what Gloria and the uh, Harambi and the Shanti Foundation are doing to give people tools to focus and support and community that they are not on their own navigating this territory out of these gutters and are able to find their way back into health and wholeness and joy and connection. And for each of us in our own ways, we have our own journey, whether it's addiction or depression or anxiety or loneliness or heartbreak. Or this nagging sense of being insufficient or not good enough. Or something is fundamentally wrong or bad. Or this kind of free-floating sense that, you know, just not feeling like belong anywhere. We each have our own journey. And so when we have the capacity to bring the quality of care and attention and skill to that, to meet it where we're at, to develop the muscles of our mind, but also to understand that there are times when we need specific supports because the ordinary tools don't help. So in the neuroplasticity community, most of us there are navigating limbic injury where our brains got jammed into stress responses. It isn't sufficient to just ask us to refocus our attention on something that is wholesome and pleasant. We need to come up with tricks and and ways to support our ability to do that. And community is a large part of it. Kindness is a large part of that. Bringing joy into our bodies and feeling it, uh, letting ourselves reawaken to what that is like, is part of it. And so I started with the image of this monk who is in this expression of ecstasy and saying, oh, what joy there is to know that there's no happiness in this world. And that is a kind of ultimate expression of realization And there are times in life where we need to make efforts to re-remember what joy feels like because we don't have access to it. And these small steps are efforts to live with integrity, 
our efforts to practice non-harm in ourselves and towards each other and in the world, our efforts to notice places that we have been blind to in the past. These are all steps that allow us to bring the joy and the radiance that is potential into not only our self-reflective inquiry, but also in our relationship with each other. And then in our relationship with each other, to build and feel ways of bringing structure to our communities that supports health and well-being and into the physical world itself. So what I'd like to do is pause here and invite questions and discussion and invite a, uh, two volunteers to run mics. So I'd like if you've got a question to raise your hand and uh, we'll have the mic runners run. And then I would like to finish with a brief guided meditation at the end. And thank you all of the folks that are out there. I can't see you, but thank you for participating. And we don't yet have a way of fielding your questions. So you'll just have to transmit them through your thoughts that somebody in the audience picks them up. (laughs) Question in the back here. So you had uh, started your talk tonight discussing a teacher of yours who had a sort of maybe a contentious relationship with the prevailing cultural values and therefore stayed or moved away from that in order to teach the Dharma. And so... Uh, my question is, and this is probably my eighth or ninth Monday night, in listening to most of the teachers, um, the, there's often a political thread through the discussions, and those, the political thread is often lockstep with prevailing attitudes and beliefs of the San Francisco Bay Area progressive set. I don't know how else to say it. And that strikes me as a kind of melding and a kind of ossification around a belief system that may or may not always match up with the Dharma. So I wonder if you, as a kind of one of the lead teachers, have any misgivings about the marriage of political or progressive politics and the Dharma and whether you get concerned that it's getting sort of ossified around a certain value set and that that might actually be um, in the way of awakening or in the way of embodiment in some cases, I guess I would say. Does that question make sense? It makes a lot of sense. And I want to speak about this in a very personal context. A a friend of mine who was a facilitator um, identified as being very conservative in his political views and felt completely alienated to go to any meditation group because the meditation groups were all... Um, not welcoming of conservative political views, and he felt completely 
uh, like he was out of place. So either he was forced to shut up or to engage in, in, in battle, and he didn't want to do either. So he didn't come. And so in, a, in, a, in some of the contexts that I've been in, in the monastery, for example, it's part of our policy that we don't speak about politics because in the ideal world, which doesn't exist, in an ideal world, a monastery or a spiritual center is a place where everyone can feel welcome. And it isn't about whether you have a progressive or a conservative view. It's about looking at things in a different way. So in this particular point, I feel divided. And I feel divided because we are navigating some issues that are requiring action. And the action requires um, being mobilized around recognizing certain things are happening. And so on one hand, I feel that it's really important to create neutral spaces where everybody, no matter what their belief is, feels welcome. That is a true thing. And the other is is that I feel that we need to galvanize and start mobilizing in the direction of coherence and cohesiveness uh, uh, pronto. And I don't personally know how to hold that tension better than the bumbling, mumbling that I do, which is to try and recognize that while both of these are true, there are certain kinds of mobilization that I feel is really important, and sometimes I speak to that. But in a situation like a Dharma talk like this, I wouldn't bring it up. I would respond to a question, but it wouldn't be the focus of my talk. Anybody else? In the front here, please. Thank you. So you were talking about um, laughter, and for me, I've caused a lot of pain through the process of just wasn't awake. Um, So it's not funny, but I feel more compassion for myself and the people I've hurt. So I'd like you to speak to that when you've caused pain and suffering because of where you were at at one point in your life. So I think um, hindsight is twenty twenty. You know, when we look in the back, we can see things that we would do differently. And part of the humility as well as humiliation of being in this human form is that we make mistakes. And that that is how we learn. And so a large part of what we need to bring forward is the recognition that everything that we did had its own set of causes and conditions. And as we learned more and had more capacity, we changed often the way we responded. And when we touch into the pain that we ourselves were holding that allowed us to act in ways that we regret, then it gives us the possibility of forgiving ourselves. And so it's often the case when we're navigating forgiveness that the person that is the hardest to forgive is ourself. And 
this work of forgiving ourselves. It's not being complacent. It's not recognizing that there was no impact. It's not saying that we're off the hook and they don't need to do any repair or um, mending. It's not any of that. But the recognition that we didn't have all the information and all the knowledge and all the wisdom and the skill and that we were coming from our own set of pain and that that was part of what contributed to doing things that we regret. So in the Buddhist context, there's a difference between toxic shame and this pulling back because one does recoiling out of not wanting to harm or to hurt. So toxic shame is when we, we, we solidify around the feeling that there's something fundamentally wrong with me that I am fundamentally wrong, fundamentally bad, I am fundamentally flawed. And, and, and the irony is that the, the greatest way to reinforce that is to continue to do the same things that you regret. So the weird thing about that kind of toxic shame is that it perpetuates unskillful behavior, unconsciously. The best punishment for somebody who's stuck in toxic shame is to repeat the things that we feel terrible about. The Buddha doesn't speak about that. The Buddha speaks about the quality of being able to reflect on causes and conditions. When I do this, it has this effect. It doesn't solidify a bad person. But it also doesn't exempt one from feeling the heartbreak of the harm that is the impact. So while we can register that our intent might have been mixed or misguided, we don't disconnect from the impact. And that capacity to do that is one of the things that the Buddha described as a light of the world. And the difference between toxic shame where we solidify a fundamentally flawed person and this where we see the cause and effect, we understand intent and we are present for impact is the difference between night and day. Because one doesn't allow to move forward and the other gives us a footing where we can begin to see what happened and what we did And that recognition gives us the courage and the confidence to make a different choice. So when I say that, what happens? I can talk loud. It's very powerful. I made myself very vulnerable talking about this. So I'd like to listen to it again. (laughs) So um, So what happens is it just kind of helps. Um, I don't think I'm in the toxic place, but I'm healing. Yeah. So that spoke to me a lot. Um, and it was, it was a reminder of the self-forgiveness. That's really important. Because if you haven't forgiven yourself, you can't really move forward uh, in a healing place. But thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So I'd like to change gears and do a little guided meditation that's going to have a couple of components to it. I want to start with just um, an invitation to 
Just let go of ideas of who you are and how you're supposed to be. And an invitation to come into the present moment. And just allow the stories of who you have been. Uh, Let them be. And in this space of openness where we're not trying to figure anything out or fix anything or get rid of anything, we're not focused on characteristics like gender or sexual orientation or race. Not that they're not important, they're hugely important. But just in this moment, we're going to allow attention to just relax in the quality of knowing. And in that quality of knowing, just check and see if it is spacious. Where the attention is relaxing in the quality of awareness itself. We're not focused on a thing. We're not focused on a, a sight or a sound. We're not focused on a, on a feeling tone or an image. We're not imagining anything. We're not remembering. We're just relaxing. We might feel our body shape, but that's not where we're focused. We might feel sensations, but that's not where we're focused. Sounds come and they go. But that's not where we're focused. So we lean into the knowing, into the quality of awareness itself. Just for a moment, suspend our pleasure with our opinions and our judgments and our ideas and just relax just rest without having to get or get rid of do or be anything 
sounds can come and sensations can come, thoughts can come. We don't need to make thought the enemy. Just like the clouds can pass through the sky. We don't need to worry or organize the clouds or collect them. And when we touch this, when we rest in this, we rest in that quality of mind that's always there. We might not have access to it. But just like the space in the room is always there, we might not see it or notice it. Touching this, resting here, knowing this. It's a blessing. It's a gift. And shifting gears. Feeling our body, feeling the weight in the chair, on the cushion, on the floor, against the wall. Just taking a moment to acknowledge the effort of what it was to come here. Many people drove to get here tonight and weather is torrential rain. A number of people are listening from a live stream. In the, in the comfort of your own home. Just noticing the impact of, of the ways that you were impacted by the evening. Our time together, what was shared, what resonated, what didn't resonate. in allowing the blessings of our time together to be like a gift that's shared out in the wind that touches all beings in every direction soaks into the land into the coyotes into the eagles to the bears, to the dolphins, and spreads out all over the land.
So thank you so much for coming tonight, sharing this evening together. And thank you for all the people on the live stream. Thank you for coming. Thank you.